Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 6. The words will be on the screen here in just a moment, but uh, Mark chapter 6 is where we are, and if you'd like to have it in front of you there, we'll be in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, as we continue walking with Jesus through this, this biography written by Mark, at, at the, uh, really at the feet of St. Peter, we know, uh, Peter, Simon Peter. I would like to read to you, now, Jesus was the big brother, okay, he wouldn't have had the little brother syndrome like I did. But uh, he still had some things that had to be dealt with. So I want to read this aloud as you read along and kind of get the feel of this story as we see this really happened in the life of our Lord. And he went out from there, and he came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simeon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. Now, doesn't sound all that accepting, does it? Doesn't sound like they were being all that friendly. Well, actually, you have to think about it, though. This was actually better than the last time. The last time the Scripture records that he preached in this synagogue, back in Luke chapter 4, they got, him, he, they got so mad at him, they carried him out of town, we're going to throw him off a cliff. So this was actually a step up from that. But I want us to find in this passage, not a picked-on local boy, I want us to find in this passage not somebody who was rejected by the, the, the town, but I want us to find in this passage the unstoppable the unstoppable, the unstoppable Christ. Because even though they could not see him as anything special, Jesus had come to town. And with him, all of the power, might, love, mercy, and grace of heaven. So let's follow these verses closely as we go through these verses here. Chapter 6, verse 1 again. It says there very simply, he went out from there. Where was he? He was in Capernaum. If you remember just at the last of the last chapter, we followed Jesus to the house of Jairus the, and, and the little girl, the little 12-year-old girl that was in the back bedroom lying there literally, completely, genuinely dead. Jesus raised her up from death. I mean, he left that where that 12-year-old girl was raised from death. He left a place where there were large crowds following him everywhere he went. He went to a place where there were long lines of people waiting for him to touch them and, and receive a touch of healing and deliverance from the Lord. And so then he left there, and he came to his hometown. He went up into the hills to a place called Nazareth, the old hometown. Would have been, you know, the hills and valleys of childhood, if you can think back to your early days. He went back to be in the same place as those people who would have seen him grow up. And by the way, this is the disciples' first time into Nazareth, at least as his followers, that we can tell. My first thought is when he goes home, where does he stay? Where's he going to go stay? Mama lives there. The other brothers and the sisters still live there. Where would he go? Well, he'd probably go stay with family, right? Well, maybe, because the last time he saw his family, he didn't actually come out and listen to them. Back in chapter 3, they came to take charge of Jesus to say, he's getting above himself. He's getting outside of what we expect. So they came to take charge of him, and he said, well, you know, my mom and, and my brothers are out there. But he said, look at the, the ones who do the will of my father. They are my, 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 my mother and my brothers and my sisters. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe he didn't just drop his plans and rush out and see what they wanted. So I don't know. Maybe he stayed with immediate family. But think about this. 
Jesus and his disciples were there. It may have been some of the wives. We don't know exactly everybody that was walking with Jesus, but it could have been as many as 20 people. Do you just throw up a, a cot or maybe a, a, you know, put a paddle on the floor for 13, 15, 20 people? Could have been a big deal. So they may have stayed with several different folks, but regardless, it doesn't matter. He arrives, and then as the week progresses on the Sabbath, it says there in verse 2, when Sabbath has come, he went, to, he went to church. He went to the Sabbath. He went to the local worship service. By the way, more than one place in Scripture it reminds us that it was his custom. I love it the way the King James says it. It was his custom to go down to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He made it a habit. Now, okay, obviously this is not a text that's necessarily teaching about church attendance, but what kind of a pastor would I be if I didn't hit it while I was here, right? Jesus here is modeling for us that we are supposed to make worship attendance a normal, vital, habitual part of our lives, not just for us, but for the others we see there. You have any idea how encouraging it is for, for Brother James or for me or for some, some of these people that we see you here and we think, wow, this is great. We're so happy you're here. And, and visitor or regular, it's terrific. And, and if Jesus thought that it was important to go to worship, what does that tell us? If Jesus thought it was vital to be with other believers, what does that tell us? Can we do better without attendance? No. Can we do better without the fellowship? No. Can we do better without the contribution that we make to the church, the church makes to us? And I'm not talking about money. I'm talking about the relationships that we build, the friendships that are there, the strength that we gain from one another. That's why Jesus went to church or modeled why we should go to the, the church as he went to synagogue. So that's just a side note, free, no extra charge. So he gets to synagogue. And he begins to teach. Now, for some of us as Americans, that might actually seem a little strange. Because here he's a visitor. He doesn't live in this town. He used to, but he's a visitor. He's got all this, this crew with him, this, his, his group that's there with him. For an American church, let's say you're just a visiting pastor, and you're sitting over there, you're just trying to mind your own business, not bother anybody. And the, the preacher from the pulpit says, Brother Don, you got, a, you got something to say? Come on up. I can tell you when you're on vacation, you do not dream about that. Okay? Well, some do, I guess. I don't know. Ron, do you dream about that? Not much. <laughs> He's still thinking it over. Jesus, though, the traveling evangelist, the one who was there, in New Testament times, it was not unusual at all for uh, a person to be asked to speak. Maybe they had something to say. Maybe it was just a short verse. Maybe it was a simple little uh, uh, word of encouragement. But in that, in that time, the, the synagogue services were much less structured than we have today. Sometimes they last five, six, seven hours. You went there, it was a place of prayer, it was a place of worship. And so for a, a traveling rabbi, especially with a following like this to be asked to speak, it was nothing unusual. In fact, Paul, in his writings later on in the New Testament, you'll find where it says, they just went in and sat down at the synagogue and sent them word, hey, brother, you got something to say? Say on. And so Paul took off. <laughs> And he, he gave the gospel. Sounds radical for, for us, but it's far more common in Scripture and in Bible times than we might imagine. But in verse 2 there, it says, He began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners, that's interesting, the many listeners, that means the, the town came to, to church, the many listeners were astonished. They were astonished. That's an interesting word to me. Now, for us, we don't use that word very much. We say things like, that blew my mind. It just wore me out. It surprised me a little bit when my, my son said, thank you. Or my, you know, the, the person at the Walmart said, here's your change, sir, and counted it back in order. <clears throat> Moving right along. They were astonished. What were they astonished at? Well, maybe they knew Jesus. 
Maybe they'd known him from before. They recognized his voice. Maybe they recognized the family resemblance. I think that's one of those. I think that's one of Mary's boys. Isn't that, isn't that one of Mary's boys? But when they said there in verse 2, where did this man get these things? Notice the way they said it. Where did this man? That they knew, that they thought they knew at least. When they said, where did this man, what they really meant was this ordinary, run-of-the-mill, this local guy, they were astonished that he was able to teach because they thought they knew him. They were astonished at his wisdom because they thought they knew him. They were astonished at his ability to heal and all the stories that they had heard because they thought they knew him. So with the authority, the wisdom, the teaching that he was able to do, they were astonished. Now, why is that? Because all of a sudden... Their established normal pecking order, if you will, their expectation was being upset. He's just a local guy. Who does he think he is? They were not ready for that. See, our familiarity often causes us to not be able to see the possibilities. And here are these people so familiar with Jesus, the possibility that he could be something more than they knew, they couldn't get that. We know this guy. We know his brothers. We know his mom. We know his sisters. That's what it, keeps, it tells us down in verse number 3. How is it then that there's miracles and wisdom? This is no teacher. I mean, come on, this is the carpenter. In fact, many of them very well could have had Jesus come and work at their house on some carpenter project. Can you imagine that? Somebody might have said, I remember this guy. Him and his daddy came over and fixed our door several years ago. Or I remember this guy. Yeah, he came and rebuilt our stable, he and his brothers. Or I remember this guy, uh, you know, he rebuilt our back room, and they, were, I mean, they did a good job building the back room, but come on, a teacher? Who does he think he is? Give me a break. And, and it's interesting. They might have thought that, you know, if he was a Pharisee, I could see it. If he was a Levite, maybe. If he was a priest, for sure, but this is a carpenter. No way. And especially, and this might have been the, the deal breaker, they knew his brother's. And if you all have some, some, some people know your brother and they look down at you because, well, they, yeah, we know that James and Joseph and Simon especially, oh, my goodness, and his sisters, don't get me started. You know, they knew him, so it was a little bit more than they could take to take him seriously as a teacher. Okay, so they took offense at him. It says there in the end of verse 3, they took offense at him. What does that mean? That means they rejected his offer for help. They rejected his his power to, to deliver them. They rejected his power and his authority to forgive them. And why? Well, the same reason why so many of us, you know, when you go somewhere and you've been, I don't know how to say this. When I was, in 1980, when I was born again, I had a lot of friends here in Blanchard. And <clears throat> after I gave my life to the Lord and started seriously following Jesus, suddenly my friends didn't want to be my friends no more. And I would talk about the Lord, or I'd quote scripture to them, and they would give me this face like, I remember back when, see, we all have dealt with this, because people look at us, people who remember us, they can't get past our past, well, they couldn't get past the past there in Nazareth, because they had an experience in their past, that is, they had watched this man Jesus grow up there in Nazareth, they'd seen him work there in Nazareth, and though he was different than most, because he lived a sinless life, different than everyone, in fact. They couldn't get past their experience. Not only that, but they couldn't get past their expectation. I mean, we expect you to be able to build tables and doors and, you know, repair walls and things like that, but I'm not going to my, 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 my carpenter for spiritual guidance. And so they, they had not only, they couldn't get past experience and expectation, but they couldn't get past their evaluation of Jesus. They saw Jesus trying to be something that he was not qualified to be. 
they evaluated him as a fake or they evaluated him as a fraud because they were so familiar. So they rejected him. You say, well, that's outrageous. This was God in human flesh. They didn't know that. That's just outrageous. Can't people just let you grow up? Let me tell you another funny story. About 25 years ago, my parents, they had a little small business on the side, and they were paying taxes on something that they didn't have to pay taxes on. And I mean, it was obvious. I could read it. I read it to them and said, Mom, Dad, you don't need to be paying these taxes. This is too much. You're paying something you don't have to pay. Oh, I think we ought to, have, I think we ought to pay that. We don't want to get in trouble. Mom, Dad, listen, I'm, let me read it to you again. And I read it to them three times. No, I think we better pay it. We're going to go ahead and pay it. My dear wife comes in the next day, says the exact same thing about the exact same thing to the exact same people, and her they believe. And they stopped paying that tax they didn't owe. Why couldn't they take it from me? Because they knew me. Maybe they knew how intelligent I wasn't, but <clears throat> nonetheless, that's the, that, it, it happens. So I know a little bit about what Jesus meant when he says in verse 4, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Now, Having read that, I want to ask a couple of questions like, what, what does it mean to honor a prophet? You honor a prophet by frying some chicken? Apple pie? Not a bad start. Well, you know, the paycheck, that's how we honor the pastor down there at church. We pay him. To honor a prophet, what Jesus is talking about here is to recognize that a prophet really just means someone who speaks for God. So to honor a prophet is to have the, the respect to understand that this man is speaking as if God himself was speaking to me, and I'm going to receive it in that manner. I have to receive it with, this is God speaking. Yes, it's through a man, but it's God speaking. It might be hard to accept that if the prophet is your neighbor. It might be hard to accept the prophet if the prophet turns out to be your big brother. How about this one? It might be really hard to accept that the prophet turns out to be the electrician that was just working at your house last week. And what if it was the mailman? I mean, come on. The mailman speaking for God? Come on. Familiarity. See, when, when, when people try to change and people start to grow and God starts to grow them up in Christ, especially as people begin to take on more responsibilities in a church, oftentimes familiarity breeds contempt. Who do you think you are? Who do they think they are? They're not so smart. I got more letters after my name than any of my brothers. How could they treat me like that? Familiarity breeds contempt, but it also begs criticism because, hey, I remember when. I remember when you were growing up. I saw you one time. I heard you say a naughty word. I'm just picking on you because you're there. It's probably him. Yeah. It not only begs criticism, though, but it builds condemnation because we get this whole thing. Who, do you think, who does he think he is? We ought to get him out of here. We ought to run him off. And so, these Nazarenes, who knew Jesus, or at least they thought they did, they could not accept the teaching Jesus. They could not accept the mighty Jesus. They could not accept the wise, the healing Jesus. And their lack of acceptance cost them dearly. Now look at verse 5. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. Now that verse right there has always kind of flummoxed me because it sounds like he could do no miracle except for this miracle. He could do no mighty work except for this mighty work. It's kind of the way it looks. So let me ask this question and, and think about this. Try to put this in your, in, your, in your knower and figure it out. Did their unbelief limit 
Jesus. And what I mean by that is, was their lack of faith enough to shackle the hands of Jesus so that he wanted to do something, but he couldn't? If not, if that's not what it means, then how do we understand verse 5, the first half of it there? Is our doubt and unbelief enough to so quench the power of God that he can't do it? Well, no, that's not what it means, because take note, it says, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So the power of God was still moving. Nothing wrong with God's power. Everyone who came to Jesus got their need met. But see, it was the unbelief of those who were too familiar, those who were easily offended, their unbelief kept them from coming to Jesus, and therefore they got nothing. And I can illustrate it very simply. Let's say that I'm going to start handing out $100 bills. Just form a line right here. $100 bills. Here we go. Now see, not, no, I'm just kidding. They're fake, and it's fives. But let's say it was $100 bills, and I had the money to do this. And if you just get in line, I'm happy to hear you. Here we go, here we go, here we go. What would keep you from receiving a $100 bill? Refusing to get in line. Or knowing my bank account, one or the other. No, but if you refuse to get in line, you're not going to get it. And so here I am, I've got my riches ready to hand out, and nobody gets in line, or maybe just a few, and so just only a few. I can't give out my riches, except to a few who were willing to come. That's what this verse is teaching. That if you will be willing to come, if you'll get in line, God can take care of your needs and God will stay out of line and it's going to cost you. Because I can guarantee you, in my scenario, I am not going to hunt you down and stuff $100 bills in your pocket. But if you come to me, no problem. The Nazarenes, majority of them, got nothing. Their choice to marginalize Jesus, to write off that local boy who wanted to be a prophet, why? It cost them. It did not limit the unstoppable Christ. The limit was not on Jesus. It was on them because of their unwillingness to ask in faith. And in verse 6, it says, and he wondered. Another translation says he marveled at their unbelief. And, and, and at least enough that the disciples heard it, that people could tell this is surprising him. This, and maybe he said in Aramaic, wow. What is wow in Aramaic? I think it's wow. I don't know. But he, 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 somehow the apostles saw and remembered that he marveled, that he wondered at this. What was he wondering at? What was he marveling at? Was he wondering at his lack of miracles? No. Was he wondering at his lack of mercy? No. Was it the fact that ministry wasn't happening? No, that wasn't the problem. That wasn't what he was marveling. He was marveling at their unbelief. I mean, think about it. God shows up in town. I mean, he's incognito. It's God in human flesh. But God shows up in town. And, and, and the only thing which kept them from receiving just as many miracles as they'd seen down there at Capernaum was what? It was their choice not to believe. As the old saying goes, there are none so blind as those who will not see. This town full of people. Indeed, you can think about that. Our whole world today has become blind and unbelieving by choice. Many of them know the truth, and they've decided, I'm not going to believe it. It's, it's almost like, can you imagine this? You go to a, a place, and somebody's going to introduce something. Brand Let's say uh, that you've never heard of the color blue, and they're going to do this big presentation to introduce the color blue. Let's say it's me, and I've come to, to introduce the color blue, and I'm going to have slides and PowerPoint and color swatches, and we're going to go from periwinkle to navy and every blue in between. Are you ready? Here we go. And I just work hard to introduce the color blue, and you, sitting on the front row, say, 
There is no color blue. There is no color blue. You don't want to see it. Our world has got to that place about the gospel. By their choice. By their hardening of their heart. God has so designed his universe that he honors the choice of the unbeliever. And when he honors their choice, as he did there in Nazareth, they'll do without. He designed in his creation that sin leads to its own cost. That is, disobedience leads to punishment. Not always in this world, but it will always lead to punishment. And just so, righteousness will always be rewarded. Not always in this world, but it will be rewarded because obedience pays a good wage. How sad it was for Nazareth and the people there that we saw. How sad and amazing, how sobering and awful. But before we you know, start pointing an accusing finger back to Nazareth, is it possible that we as a culture... Is it possible that we as a church are doing without because of our unbelief? Remember, it's the unstoppable Christ. You can't stop him being powerful. You can't stop him wanting to give you what you need. You can't stop him wanting to take care of you. You can't stop him wanting to save. But are we doing without because we don't trust the message? Or more likely, we don't trust the messenger. And we've just decided, I don't have to believe that. I don't think I believe that. I, don't, I remember when... Is it because our belief would require us to change? Is it because our belief would require us to give up, to surrender? Listen, the world tells you that you'll never change. The world tells you that you might as well give up. The world tells you that you can't get better. But I'm here to tell you God has better plans for us. As a nation, as a church, as a community, as an individual family, God has better plans for you. And he is the unstoppable Christ. My inabilities do not mean he is unable. Our lack does not mean that he lacks. And the gospel is still saving. The, the God of heaven is still on the move. And we cheat ourselves when we choose not to believe. But God is still saving men and women, boys and girls. Because the gospel is still there. The gospel is still true. Scripture tells us that the Almighty God created a perfect creation. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then into that perfect creation He put His greatest creation, that is man. A man and a woman. The Bible tells us in the beginning He created him, man and, male and female created He them. And for a time there was perfect Communion and, 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 and it's like, like the fruit of earth receiving life from the vine. There was life-giving connection and fellowship as the life of God was flowing into His creation. But then, as you know, that great tragedy struck when people chose to disobey the Almighty Creator and rebellion brought into this perfect world sin. God had created it without sin, without suffering, without shame, but rebellion brought in sin and suffering and shame. And into all people who would follow came that sin nature. That's why the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We not only sin because of our nature, we sin because that's what we want to do by nature and by choice. And like a fruit that's being torn away from a vine, Sin brought separation between the Creator God and the people He created. Isaiah 59, 2 says that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sin has caused Him to turn His face away from you. And so this great gulf was fixed. A canyon, an uncrossable chasm, if you will. As Scripture says, a great gulf fixed between holy God and sinful man. And for a while, 
for a long time, death reigned. And the reason death reigned is because Scripture says the wages of sin is death. And though people still wanted their Creator, they still had a hunger for their Creator, the sin canyon would forever separate the fruit of the earth from reconnecting with the wonderful life-giving vine of heaven. And nothing short of a miracle was going to put that fruit back on that vine. But thanks be unto God that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Father God, Creator, sent His own Son, born of a virgin, so that He had no sin nature. And then He lived a perfect sinful life so that He had no guilt, no transgression. Jesus, the Messiah, He came from the life side of the chasm all the way across to the death side. He invaded this world dominated by death. And he came to a people who, the scripture says in Ephesians, were without God and without hope and in the world. And because the just payment for sin is death, because scripture says without shedding of blood there's no remission of sin, Jesus went to a cross. He went to the cross, my cross really, to die in the place of those sinful people that he loved. As Jesus bled there on that cruel instrument of execution, God put all of my guilt and all of your guilt. On that cruel instrument of, of, of execution, he, he took all of your sin and all of your shame and all of your suffering. He put it on Jesus there on that cross so that he could pay our price. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And on that cross... Jesus, bearing our sin, guilt, and shame, he died. They took him off of that cross after his death. They laid him in a tomb, and they sealed him there. But on the third day, God raised him from death. God raised him up again, demonstrating his power over the grave, the unstoppable Christ. And, and not only that, God showed his acceptance that what he had done was enough. What he had done was going to be acceptable substitution. And that's why I read just a little bit of Romans 6.23. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And he offers that gift to all. But a gift must be received. That's why it says in John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God, even to those who believed in his name. God put our guilt and shame on Jesus. Now he offers us the gift of righteousness through Jesus so that we, in Christ, can cross back over the canyon. We, in Christ, can be reconnected to that heavenly life of God. John 5, 24 says it like this, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Would you like to receive that gift right now? He's ready to give it to all who will call upon him. How do we do that? It's very simple. Jesus calls all men everywhere to repent. You admit the truth to yourself that you're a sinner. You admit the truth to God that you can't reconnect. You're separated from the life of God, and, and, and you turn away from that sin to the Lord. That's, that's what repentance is all about. And then you believe that he died in your place and that God accepted his substitution then that he rose again to give you new life. We get saved, really, by confessing him as Lord and Savior. Scripture says in Romans 10 that if you will 
confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Friend, that's an unstoppable promise from the unstoppable Christ. And just a few verses later, it says, and anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you can be at peace. You can be reconnected to the Creator just as God designed it. And Romans 5.1 that says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. But listen, in order for you to receive that gift, you're going to need to come to Jesus. You're going to need to come to Jesus. But you, I think I have. You think you have? Are you a rock rib certain you know you have? Because I think, friends, it's time we got the doubt out. And if you're not 100% certain you're saved, I've told you before, 99% sure is 100% lost. Where have you heard that before? We have a God who is reaching out to us saying, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my burden upon you and my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And he will save you today. His love is unstoppable. Come to Jesus. His mercy is unquenchable. Come to Jesus. His good news, it's not unbelievable because we can believe it. But it's here for you today. And so I invite you as we get ready to have our invitation in just a moment to come to Jesus. Let's pray.